You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through, and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame it. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Antler VC cast. In this episode, we have with us Patrick Lee, the co-founder of Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes has been around for over 20 years and is the entertainment website focused on movie reviews and news. Patrick is also a serial entrepreneur who has started six startups across the US, China and Hong Kong. His companies are largely focused in the technology and entertainment space, targeting consumers. He's also very active in the startup ecosystem. Welcome to the show, Patrick, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. You're joining us from California today. So let me start by asking how you are and how things are there, because there is a lot happening in the United States right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing good. I've just been staying safe. Right now, my dad lives with me. Uh, as well as my girlfriend. So I haven't been going out. He's not young. He's in his mid-70s. So I don't want to take any kind of risks of going out and bringing something home and getting him sick. So for me, I've been I've been good. As far as what's happening here in the States, I mean, it's kind of a mess. Uh, you know, between COVID and our handling of it compared to, let's say, most of Asia, we... I don't think we took it seriously enough. Um, and so things have, you know, if you look at the numbers, just exploded here. Uh, it's starting to slow down, but who knows with the recent protests, I think there's going to be enough, another massive spike. I think it's starting to go back up again. So that part's not been good. You know, it's been obviously devastating to all lots of small businesses and, and large businesses as well. Um, retail shops, transportation, hospitality. I don't think I've ever, as long as I've been here in the States, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anything to this as this bad. You know, I when we were doing Rotten Tomatoes, we went through the crash, the bubble bursting in the year 2000 and 9-11, the year after that. And this is worse than both of those combined by a lot. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um Good, but great to hear that you're um, staying safe and, um, and, and people around you. Um, switching to lighter things, it's been, you know, it's great to see you. The, la the first time we met, we met at a poker table. Um, have you still been playing a lot? Or? No, I, I think that was the last time I played. I, I don't really play very often. <laughs> um, oh, oh. So then, then it means that we should play uh, together. <laughs> Uh, like like people who don't play that much, but uh, <laughs> but hey, um, you mentioned Rotten Tomatoes there, so why why don't uh, it would be great to hear a bit more of this sort of origin story and and how how you got started with that and and you know just so people uh, get to know get to know Patrick a bit more. Yeah, sure. So 
I've done a different a number of different startups, six total. Rotten Tomatoes is actually the third. So before Rotten Tomatoes, I was doing a web design firm doing a lot of work for the entertainment industry. So we were doing stuff for you know, Disney Channel, Warner Brothers, ABC. We did the online Flash game for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which is a very popular game show at the time. And our creative director, Sen Duong, came up with the idea for Rotten Tomatoes. Essentially, you know, he was a huge Jackie Chan fan, and he wanted to know what everyone was saying when the movie Rush Hour was coming out. And so he had this idea where, you know, back then, I think it still happens now, if you open up a newspaper, you'll see a full-page ad for a movie, and it looks like a movie poster filled with quotes. But the thing is, those quotes are always good, even if the movie is terrible, right? And so his idea was, well, what if you only do professional critics? Because, you know, if a movie was terrible, they'd had good quotes, it would be from, like, radio station DJs or, like, folks that weren't real critics. Sometimes they even had fake critics, so his idea is, what if I only use professional critics and I put all the quotes in good and bad and then have a score? So he did that. Rush Hour is one of the first movies he launched with. Uh, and then when he came out, you know, he couldn't code. So he actually built everything by hand. Static HTML went from idea to launch in two weeks. And back then, you know, most reviews were not online. So he actually went to the library to get the reviews. He would go and find the newspaper or the magazines to find the review write down a quote, you know, who it was from, and then he went back and then he would build the web pages. And when he launched it, almost immediately started kind of getting some notice, like on featured on like Netscape and Yahoo, you know, Roger Ebert wrote an article where he highlighted his favorite movie websites and Ron Tomatoes was one of them. And this was within the first year of launch. And then also the day Pixar released a bug's life and we saw a spike in traffic and that traffic was actually coming from Pixar. So, over the course of that first year of him kind of just doing it on the side and we were hosting it for him, we were like, you know, maybe this should be the business. So then I went out, raised money for it, and then we transferred our entire team from our design firm, 25 people, over to Rotten Tomatoes, and we gave our design firm off to another group to take over. And then right after we did that, you know, two months later was the stock bubble burst and, uh, for the internet, and then 18 months after that was 9-11. So it was kind of a crazy time. Wow. So what started as a side sort of trial thing and then obviously grew, there was clearly a demand for this and, um, you know, you saw this gap. But, you know, when I, when I was reading up about uh, Rotten Tomatoes, I didn't realize that it's been around for over 20 years. And so you've also seen it, like you said, the first part was so um, quick and steep the way everything uh, started from web to mobile. You know, how did you how did you navigate your way through and see these changes uh, with um, Rotten Tomatoes with the, the the core purpose still very much there intact of giving credible reviews? So we actually ran it for just five years. So we actually sold it in 2004. Um, but I think because it was a pretty useful product, it's still managed to hang around for all this time. Um, and it's actually changed hands Many, many times, like we sold to IGN Entertainment, which is a gaming site. They sold to News Corp, you know, Fox. Then News Corp sold it over to Flixster. Then Flixster sold to Warner Brothers. And then Warner Brothers sold it to Fandango. So Fandango actually owns it now, along with Flixster. Um, when we ran it, mobile really wasn't a thing. And Facebook, I think, was barely just starting when we sold the company. So we were primarily web-focused, 
our initial traffic was really coming from search engines. Even now, I think that was that's probably a big part of the traffic. Flixer was one that really took advantage of doing something similar, but with user views around mobile and Facebook. And so they were able to get a lot of traffic that way. Whereas when we did Rotten Tomatoes, we were focused much more on critic reviews and getting search engine traffic. We did launch into user reviews towards probably the last two years before we sold, where we started adding the ability. We added ability for critics to put in their own reviews. And then later on, we expanded that to allow users to have their reviews and had a different score for that. And now that's essentially that part is taken over by Flixster and Flixster powers the user reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's why you see like that little popcorn looking thing um, for that. Uh, but I think essentially we had a product that people found useful. The goal of Rotten Tomatoes is to save people time and money and the specific, you know, from not seeing a bad movie and the specific problem we were solving was just like at the time, you know, it's like Friday night, you know, you want to kind of go out and watch a movie, but what movie should you see? And when Rotten Tomatoes came out, there wasn't a really good solution. I mean, the closest was probably like Cisco and Ebert with their thumbs up, thumbs down, two reviewers. But beyond that, maybe you get your local reviewer, like your local newspaper or TV um, show person, or most likely it was that you saw a trailer on TV or in the theater from another movie. And that's how you made your decision. And obviously their trailers always try to make the movie look really good. So there wasn't this idea of a, a singular score that could kind of give you a good way to compare movies across. No, it, it's definitely still very much, like you say, the core purpose is still very much there. And it, it does at times uh, prevent me and the family from uh, having fights on a Friday night, deciding what to watch. Cause we then will short pick a uh, short list based on the Rotten Tomato score and say, okay, let's go with this. <laughs> I always wondered, like, uh, you know, some adult critics uh, compare kids' movies. Like, how can they really, can they really, like, simulate the taste the kids will have? But... Actually, I would say a lot of kids' movies in general score more highly than movies for adults. Um, especially, you know, like Pixar movies, for instance. Every Pixar movie was very, very, had a very high rating, except for, I think it was Cars 2 was the only rotten movie. You know, just because... There are movies a lot of times with like Pixar movies are movies that are designed to obviously work with kids, but a lot of times they also have humor that works yes, with adults as yes. well. Yeah. Without without being like dirty or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I always love them. You gotta get the parents to uh you know, enjoy the experience of going to the movies as well, right? With the kids. Uh if you just go there and you're paying for yourself and you're like, Oh, this movie sucks, but I you know, I'm just coming here for the kid. I'm probably gonna do something else next time, so They've been very smart about that, right? And I guess when they make a, you know less less of those kids' movies like big budget, da, 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 I think the quality might uh, you know go up. Well, cool. Um, <clears throat> you by the way, you've said publicly that you guys sold uh, right. you know Rotten Tomatoes too early. Uh, now you've had uh, more more time uh, more time to reflect on that. Is that um, you know you, just, you still share that view and anything there you can share on share about or yeah, so I think for us, the big thing was because right after we raised, the market crashed, uh, and we had to go through 9-11, it sort of changed the way we, we thought about things. Um, because once the market crashed, one, you weren't raising money again, but two, especially because it was 
the internet stock bubble burst. So it really hurt internet companies, of which we were one. But back then, majority of internet companies, I want to say like 90-some percent of them, they're making their money from ads, not directly from users, right? And so most of these companies that were ad-supported, the money was coming from other internet companies. So they're raising a bunch of money to buy ads on other sites to, drive, to get traffic, you know, to increase their eyeballs so that they could raise more money, that they could then buy more ads and keep doing it, and they would try to IPO. Like, that was the typical path. But basically, once the market crashed, they didn't have any money anymore. So they also stopped buying ads. And so, one, you couldn't raise money, but two, ad rates went from, you know, 5 to $20 CPM down to, like, fractions of a penny. So you basically, your revenue went to near zero also. And so that's a really tough hit. I mean, that would be like right now, you know, if you're running a business that was retail focused, right? You're probably not gonna be able to raise money easily. And you also went like lost all your revenue. So it was the same kind of thing. Um, so that was really tough. And then obviously with 9-11, you know, for years after that happened with both of them, everyone kept saying there's going to be another crash. There's going to be another terrorist attack. And there were of both of those things. At least to me, they weren't as bad as what we had to go through. I mean, until now. Um, and so I think because of it, we were just always in a survival mode. We're just like, don't die, don't die. We had to cut from 25 people down to seven. I was sleeping under my desk for half a year. And so when we started getting offers, we actually started getting offers where it was like 10 cents on a dollar, 25 cents on a dollar, as far as what our investors would have gotten back. And Internally, we talked about it. And we're like, we had gotten to break even. And so we said, you know, we're not going to sell unless we at least can get our investors our money back. And obviously, looking back at it now, we're like, wow, that was such a low bar to just only aim to get your investors their money back. And we actually sold, made them money. Um, they're probably the only, for the investors that invested in us, it was probably one of the only things that actually returned anything because everything else they invested in went to zero during that time. But it was just, we had too low of a bar. And I think it was a lot of it was because literally two months after we raised, everything went crazy. So obviously looking back, you know, I think there's two things. One, had we timed it better, I think could have made a big difference. And two, had we done a better job of like finding competitive offers, all that kind of stuff. And really when it comes down to what I realized personally was a lot of it was my fault because I was a CEO and all three of us, my co-founders and I, we were introverted. We didn't go out. We didn't network. We just happily worked on the product. Um, and so because of it, we didn't have much advice. I mean, our, outside of maybe our investors, but a lot of investors, they were hurting so much that when they saw like, offers, they're just like, take it, take it. But we really didn't have much knowledge about like, should we sell? Is it the right time to sell? How do you sell? How do you get competitive offers? Do we you know, bring on a bank or something else to help us with the process? We didn't know any of that. And, and looking back, you know, it's not easy to get something to the point where you can actually sell, right? And not just trying to sell it, get out, but like really sell it. And I think had we optimized that process better, it could have resulted in a much better outcome for the same product, for the same company, the same amount of work that we put in, the same amount of risk that we took. You know, for example, three weeks before we sold everything, closed everything, you know, Google reached out to us and we had tried to reach out to Google earlier, but we didn't have a good contact with them. The person never wrote back. It was like a low level guy. And then 
three weeks before we sold, someone from Google reached out to us and he was much higher level. And he was like, we heard you're selling. We'd like to talk. And then internally, we're just like, what should we do? Because we had already signed a no shop agreement. We're not allowed legally to talk to them. And then the question we had was, you know, do we try to, one, do it under the table illegally to, to talk to them, see if they're serious or not? Or two, wait out the no shop agreement, you know, eat all the legal fees we already put in and all the negotiation, everything, try to pause it and wait out the no shop agreement so we can legally talk to Google or three, just go ahead with a deal. And at the time we had already spent, I think it was around 300,000 in legal fees trying to going back and forth with IGN Entertainment to sell to them. And we decided, you know what, let's just sell, you know, we're already this much in, we're so close, let's just go for it. And, you know, obviously looking back, uh, it was still relatively early for Google. I mean, they were already a big company by then, but they weren't public yet. So had we just sold for the same price to Google and stock, uh, yeah, like that would have obviously been a huge difference, you know, assuming we sold, held the stock for even a few years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the stuff you can't, we can't go back in time and change anything. Uh, I think for all of us, we weren't doing it for money. So we're just very proud and happy that it's still around. Um, but, and the biggest lesson I learned from that was the value of networking, the value of just having a good network so that you can have better information at times like these. And it wasn't me that realized it was actually a good friend of mine that um, he had a company, this person, Dennis Fong, he had a company called Xpire, which he sold for, I think, $100 million. And when we were meeting up, just catching up, he was like, you know, if you just had more offers at the same amount of time, the same time, not even waiting, you should have been able to get two or three times what you, you know, sold for. And I had some good friends. They had a company called Mochi Media. And they were forced, a couple of years later, they were forced uh, to sell by their investors. And at first, the offers they were getting, like their investors would have gotten some of the money back and they would have gotten nothing. And a couple other founder friends said, no, no, wait a minute, let's, let's jump in and see if we can help with this process, made a couple more intros, and they ended up selling to Shunda for like $80 million. I think before, the previous offer was, I don't even know, I think sub-20, where they would have been, they would have gotten nothing. And at 80, they did quite well. Like, they're basically both retired now, right? And so, and that was literally just a difference of context. It wasn't anything about the company. And so, you know, for all of us, especially me, where I feel like I made that mistake, you know, and it would have been a big difference to everyone in the company, involved with the company. Um, but there's nothing I can do about it. And luckily, I don't think anyone blames me. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can always second guess things, but I mean, it sounds like you really uh, reflected on it and, and learned from it, right? I think that's also quite important. I mean, the, the the whole art of like selling is is so tough. And I don't mean the door to door salesman type, but like uh, even like the timing should you sell, and then how to actually maximize it is is uh, so so tough. Um, you know, so your advice to founders out there would be to just network and and get more connected. Um, would you would you look to get some like specific coach on this topic or hire someone who's kind of you know good at brokering deals like this baby or or is it just just to think out loud like what different options there might be out there or just is it critical that founders themselves go out and network I would say in most cases it should be 
you'd have multiple co-founders, probably two or three for most startups. Uh, the person who is like the CEO, um, founder, like the business type person who's dealing with investors, probably that person is best. Like, I don't think you really want to waste your CTO's time or whatever getting out there and telling him the network. Um, so I would say probably more the job of the CEO. And it shouldn't be like 100% of the time. It should be like 10 or 20%. But at the time for me, it was like 0%. Like we just, I just didn't do it. None of us were doing it. And I think even having 10%, 20% time and realizing that there is a lot of value to it, um, especially if you get a good network within, if let's say you're doing a tech startup within the tech community or within the industry that you're focused on, like let's say Ron Tomatoes Entertainment. If we were having a better network within the entertainment field, within investors and within other founders, tech founders, like that would have been incredibly valuable. So now I have a super strong network. I didn't back then. If I had my network now that I had back then, it would have made a, a massive difference. And I just didn't realize, I didn't value, like for us be, being introverted, being more like kind of like tech type backgrounds, we actually looked a, a bit down on sales and marketing and networking. Networking felt gross to us. But at least for me, I realized like there's a way to network that's just, that's not bad at all. And, you know, just network with people you get along with, because if you don't get along with them, they're the wrong people. They're not going to add any value to you. Make meaningful connections. I think that's, that's somehow the way I've, I've thought about it to guide myself that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not important whose hands you shake somewhere, but, you know, do you enjoy it? And can you actually build something with someone that, that becomes meaning to, meaningful to you both? That's, that's at least sort of my test. I'm just um, uh, fascinated by, by that uh, theme you mentioned there around, you know, what, you know, if, if you had your current network back then, you would be, you, you would have been so much better off, uh, which kind of brings to my mind the power of uh, this notion of serial entrepreneurs, right? So how, I mean, of course, it's overall the value of experience and, and all that, but, you know, serial entrepreneurs um, have been, um, you know, or are, are in a great position. VCs want to back them for, for these reasons. I mean, you've been there, done that. Um, so if I use that as a bit of a segue um, to move away from this specific situation and, and, and just want to hear your thoughts on, on actually, since you're a serial entrepreneur yourself, six companies, um, you know, entrepreneurship, is it nature versus nurture? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you see that? Is it, you know, do you need to have an intrinsic drive? Can you learn it? Um, what's kind of the, where does, where does the, the weight or the balance stand there? I think it's both. So one thing I would say among all my tech founder friends that have been successful is they have what I call rational confidence. So they just believe very strongly in themselves. A lot of times based on kind of nothing. Like, yeah, maybe they went to a good school or they did well in school or whatever it is, right? But in general, you know, when we did Rotten Tomatoes, we didn't know anything about movies. I don't think the Airbnb people were hotel people. I don't think the Uber people were taxi people. Like, and that happens across the board where people come in, do something very crazy out of the blue disrupt a lot of things and a lot of times you know they're going to have tons of folks out there saying no to them over and over and over but they still go out and do it and the way I, I look at it is like the folks that are 
not meant to be founders, one, they won't even try. The potentially like, quote unquote, bad founders are, they're going to hear everyone say no, no, no. And they're going to be like, yeah, you're right. And they give up. The good founders hear the no's and they still push through. And then the great founders hear the no's, push through, but actually they, they can convert even some of the no's into yeses because they're just so good at, you know, their passion or their drive or, or what they've built is able to convince people, right? And you're going to get no's from so many places, your friends, your family, potential people you're trying to raise from, people you're trying to hire, you know, clients, customers, users, like everyone. You're just all the time. And if you're not ready to handle that, you, you're not meant to be a founder. And one thing you'll see at the college level that I see all the time, the test for me when I see someone's like, should they be a founder or not, is they'll usually say on their own. It's not, I'm not even asking this question. They'll be like, oh, I was thinking of maybe going to get a job first, working for a couple of years, learn some stuff, and then go into a startup. And I'm like, wow, you already basically said you're not a founder, right? Because it's like a 99% chance at that point, you're never going to make that switch. And you're already saying right there, I can't take that risk of just diving in, not knowing what I'm doing. I need to feel like I'm, I know first. But once you go into that job, you know, the chance of you leaving every year that you're getting, you stay and you get more raises, more promotions. If you end up, you know, meeting your spouse, getting married, having kids, having car payments, house payments, the chances every year goes down. And usually for me, when you're right out of school, right out of college, like nine times out of 10, I'll be like, yeah, you should totally do a startup. I think that's the best time to do it, best time to learn. And the best place to find is in college is the best place to find a co-founder. Look at how many startups came right out of college, right? Including Facebook uh, and Google and Yahoo, right? Then on the other end of the spectrum is when people are like, say, 30s plus, even in their 40s, married with kids, have a good job, and they're thinking about doing a, leaving to do a startup. In that situation, it's probably like one time out of 10 that I'll be like, yeah, you should do it. And in that case, the only time I actually say it is when at that point it's based on they're doing something that they have industry expertise on, that their whole career led to that point where they are extremely qualified to do it and they see some gap in their industry, like a huge problem in their industry that other people don't see, they don't get it, and the industry itself is too slow to do it. So, so kind of like I think with um, is it Eric from Zoom. And he was like, this product is, could be so much better and no, no one's going to do it. And he's just like, I'm just going to go and build it, right? So stuff like that. But in general, in that situation, because a lot of times what you'll see when people are older is they just don't like the corporate life and they actually want to go and be like, I'm going to open up a cafe. And I'm almost in those cases, a lot of times they're not even real startups, but a lot of times I'm like, man, you, you're just going to start behind everyone else who started from college and they spent all those years failing and learning. And you're not going to be able to, to afford two to five years of failure when you're in your 30s, 40s, or, or, or later married with kids. Like, there's no way your spouse is going to like do that. They might give you a year or two, and after that, they're going to be like, if you keep doing this, I'm gone with the kids, right? So um, it's, it's the risk reward factor in both faces. And, you know, it's interesting what you say about uh, I, kids graduating now, college kids, this is, this is in this world, at least it's, it's a bigger risk for them. I mean, it's probably the most challenging time to be a graduate, look for a job and then decide if you want to 
take on the startup path. And at Antler, at least we have the, the, the latter that you described. Those are the kind of entrepreneurs that we, um, have in, uh, uh, in our program in terms of the ones that are really domain functional experts and see a gap. And there is a big difference in the way they view and they, and the way they create. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, some amazing points, uh, to think about. Just to comment on that, Pooja, as well. Like, I think at the same time, it's the best time ever to build a startup now. Like if we just listen to some of the points Patrick made around, you know, the struggles in the early years and, and so forth, like given the development of technology, like it's the best time ever. And uh, Absolutely. Kind of like the sooner you start, the better. So, uh, but uh, no, I, no, I think it's a, it's a fascinating point um, you made there, Patrick, because, um, you know, people often also misunderstand statistics like the pool of people in corporates is, is so huge that if it's one in 10, it still means that, you know, there should be uh, a lot of great things or there could be a lot of great things uh, coming out in, in specific fields. And, you know, I, I guess we, we all agree that, you know, a college kid um, wouldn't necessarily be in the, in the best of positions to, to build a, you know, B2B product specific to an industry. Uh, at least the chances are probably not the highest, right? Not to say that you can't build B2B SaaS straight out of college, but like, you know, industry-specific stuff, right? Um, right, right. Um, definitely. I mean, I, I think there are times when it does make sense to have some some background, but it just in terms of like the ability to take on that risk, mm. usually folks who went corporate are... Yeah less able to stomach risk. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree fully with what you said, actually. It's, it's just like the, the, my, my point was simply that given the, the pool of people in corporates is so huge, you know, this one in 10 translates still into significant, like, absolute numbers, right? Uh, well, when I say one in 10, though, real quick, I mean one in 10 of the people who approach me thinking about doing a startup because I always have folks, like, either they already have a startup idea or, and they're doing something or they're thinking about doing a startup. And when they approach me and they're right out of school, out of the 10 that approach, nine of them, I'll be like, yeah, do it. Out of the 10 that approach me that are later, one out of 10, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. You should do it. And nine out of 10, I'm like, I think about your family and I think you're kind of taking a lot of risk and I don't know. And especially when it's like they want to do something that's totally unrelated to their background. It just doesn't make sense to me. Right, right, right. So, yeah, then it depends on what distribution, you know, uh, approaches you from each side so, but let's not nerd nerd over okay <laughs> <laughs> i i want to go specifically into you know uh entertainment uh consumer uh gaming you you know you've been in those verticals and the startups a lot of the startups that you have created uh, are from that domain so um you know as as gaming video streaming uh, increases people are all these um everyone's using it more now especially now that we can't go out and um where do you see it going? And, and, you know, these tech spaces where you have gaming and entertainment, where do you see them merge and come together? I definitely think um, entertainment is going to be huge. The ability for people to, you know, play games at home, play with each other, be social with each other where they don't have to do it in person. Um, was always, there's always been kind of that movement towards it in, over the last 20 years, but it's been accelerated a lot. And um, I don't, see things changing probably over the next few years even like i think it's going to continue to accelerate because i don't see there being a vaccine for at least six to 12 months you know and even if they have a vaccine i don't see it being out there to billions of people 
anytime soon. That it's going to take a while to get everyone to get access to it, where it's actually going to be, you know, safe. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting to see the the merger between gaming and entertainment because I witnessed my first uh, Fortnite concert uh, when and I only joined because Steve Aoki was there and you know and I said okay this is going to be really interesting because I hate Fortnite it's the f word in my house uh, so uh, but but it was amazing that they've created this island for entertainment and it's literally like drop your weapons and come and chill. You know, and it's, it's, and it got through, I think, as parents, like, uh, you know, if you speak to most, uh, moms of teenage boys, they, we really despise it because of the ad- addiction. But this was a way of making us change our mindset on how we look at gaming. And, 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 and we only confronted it because obviously of this current situation. But I, I, I just thought it was fascinating where these two worlds merged. And, and for once I was like, okay, I'm going to actually try this, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I mean, what I've, I played Fortnite a little bit, but it's not really my game. And yeah, I think it hits a much younger target, but definitely one thing I've seen people talk about, um, and I've actually seen it with my cousin's kids is a lot of them are on there just for social. Like they're not, they're barely even playing it. They're really just like using it to hang out with their friends, chat with Mm -hmm. their friends. So it's sort of just like the new Facebook. It's more of a, in a way, a social network for your friends than it is even a game. Yeah, Facebook. I guess Facebook is for uh, people who are thirty, thirty and, and higher, right? Uh, but what's your game? That's uh, or sorry, if you want to comment on the Facebook thing, uh, please. Oh, um, yeah. Not that, not that that's the big theme I want to go to, but please. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I would real quick say about like Facebook and those things is, once you get to the point where grandparents are on it, um, then it it loses its cool. Generally, for teenagers, I would say what's cool changes every few years, you know? Um, and so it's really hard to stay on top when you're targeting teens. Like you can grow really fast, but you can die really fast. At one point, MySpace was really popular among teens. It's, it died like incredibly fast uh, at what, afterwards. Um, it's a danger for things like Fortnite, for Snapchat, right? Or TikTok. Um, but then once you get to a point where grandparents are using it, you're actually very safe. Like you're not going to get the, the teens, People over 30, 40, they don't change. Like once they're used to something, they're like, okay, this is what I'm going to use. You know, there's still some people using AOL accounts um, or Hotmail, right? It, like they just, once you're used to something, you you stay with it when you're older. So once they, once you see grandparents on it, like you're, you're safe. You're going to be a, a, a successful company for like a few decades. Probably. Yeah, I saw a Hotmail account recently. I remember thinking, oh yeah, I was on Hotmail as well, you know. Yeah, back. we all started um, there, I think. <laughs> yeah. But what's your game, Patrick? That's what I wanted to ask you. You said uh, uh, is, Fortnite's not your game, so what's your my game? My game is Overwatch. So uh-huh. uh, I had a couple friends that all, you know, I do like shooters, but when I had a couple friends who all started playing together, and so I, I just liked it, and I just kind of stuck with it. And there have been a lot of other games that are a lot more popular that came around since then, but I'm just... Same same thing I just said before. I'm too lazy to like pick up a new game uh, and keep switching. So I'm just like, yeah, I, I kind of learned this one. I'm just going to stick with this one. Yeah, I just wanted to hear a bit more about what you're kind of focused on right now. Uh, what's keeping you busy these days? Um, I think you you uh, strike me as someone who's involved in many different things. But sort of what's the what's keeping you busy apart from uh, COVID? So for me. 
I ended up getting a lot more time on my hands ever since, you know, uh, COVID happened. So before that, I was doing a lot of speaking, you know, around the world, um, a lot of mentoring in person at different, you know, accelerators, things like that. And essentially just doing things that I enjoyed. I mean, that's been kind of something I've done my entire life. Like when I did like startups, for instance, I was always doing something with friends that I thought was interesting. Those were like my two requirements. It wasn't about like, oh, we think we can make a lot of money on it. All six startups I've done had at least one co-founder, if not multiple co-founders, that were friends from freshman year of college, right? So same thing, like I've just been doing things that make me happy. And more recently, that was giving back, working with founders, working with startups, early stage startups. So mentoring tons of different um, accelerators, incubators, doing stuff with like Berkeley. Um, so a lot of that, just helping to give advice to these founders. The other thing was kind of getting involved with different organizations. You know, I was putting together my own events in LA that would combine people, interesting people within tech and entertainment together. Uh, sort of like would have panels, networking, Again, just for fun, no one was making any money. It was just things that we like to do, bringing really cool people together, as well as working with different organizations. So one thing, recently I've been working with a group called Gold House, which are like prominent Asian Americans in tech and entertainment, trying to help Asian Americans in the US. So, you know, around like Asians in media, supporting, you know, films like Crazy Rich Asians, uh, or recently they were trying to support Mulan before they had a, Disney had to pull it. Um, and so that was an organization that I felt very strongly uh, about towards their mission. And so I spent, I spent a lot of time helping them. And so that's essentially it, like really just working and helping early stage startups and founders and um, helping out these different organizations that I think are doing good work. Um, I'm kind of trying to figure out what's next for me, but my, you know, cause I've kind of been on break from my last few startups I did six startups over 23 years straight back to back and I got a bit burned out. The last few startups didn't go the way I hoped and I just got really tired. But then my problem is all I've done my whole life is startups. I don't know what corporate life is or any, you know, anything else. And to be honest, I'm kind of terrified. You definitely fall under the, na the nature entrepreneur um, basket. <laughs> Um, I will go back to something that you mentioned a few times when, when you talked about Rotten Tomatoes, when you talk about what you're currently doing, you know, this whole uh, concept of helping people, advising, it not being about the money, you know, so you seem to have a bigger purpose at the core. And, and what is it? I, I want to ask, like, how do you do this consistently for 20 plus years and, and have this big vision in mind to actually give? For me, a lot of it was just because I've always felt like life is short. I definitely remember strongly feeling that even when I was in high school, that life is just really short. And, you know, our high school was quite competitive. It was a magnet program. And everyone was focused on getting into really good schools. Then, you know, in, when you're in school, in college, everyone's focused on getting a good job. And I'm like, it seems like there's more than just good, you know, study hard in high school to get a good college, study hard in college to get a good job. And then do whatever it is you do after that, get married, have kids and buy a house. And I'm just like, is this all there is in our whole life? And so that's the reason why I always wanted to work with friends 
and I made a point about that. I'm like, why does everyone, you know, high school, everyone went everywhere across the States for college. And then even from college, a lot of times you're still potentially spread out from college into your jobs. Right. And so I was like, well, if I do a startup, I can do it with friends and then the friends can stay together. So that was a big thing. And then I always wanted to do something that was interesting. That's why of the six startups, four of them touched entertainment because I found entertainment interesting. But I would say, even with Rotten Tomatoes, one of the things that appealed to all of us that were working on it was, you know, we sat around for two days straight, 20 some people. This is like right after we decided to do it as a, as a company. I'm like, what is the goal of Rotten Tomatoes? And we talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. And we, that's when we came up with, we save people time and money from not seeing a bad movie. But even though that's an individual impact for any one person is not super high. Yeah, yeah you save them a little bit of money, you save a few hours, right? But it still felt like it was a positive thing. And when you multiply that against all the times where it helps someone's decision for how many people it's affected, I mean, we probably saved, I don't even know, you know, probably millions of dollars and millions of hours, I'm guessing, right? And so it was a small impact multiplied by just lots and lots of people. Um, Hmm. And it felt that was something we could really get behind. And so that's something that I also feel strongly about whenever like I'm helping startups, if they're doing something positive, it's, it, it's a lot better than, you know, folks that are like just trying to build a product, just too focused on their valuation, their term sheets, their stock options, uh, too focused on trying to get a big exit, all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I felt like after we sold Ron Tomatoes, I went to Asia for nine years, you know, China for three, Hong Kong for six to week startups. And when I came back, it changed a lot in the Bay Area where I think a lot more people were trying to do startups. Like it became like Hollywood, you know, in Hollywood, everyone that you meet, you know, every waiter, whatever, they're trying to be an actor or they have a script in their back pocket. But the Bay Area turned into that where everyone was trying to work on a startup. Everyone had a startup idea. And I felt like it was kind of for the wrong reasons. Like they weren't doing it to try to change the world. I mean, some people were, but a lot of people weren't. And I didn't, I wasn't a fan of that. And so for me, um, it's yeah. So it's, it's always been something that I felt very strongly about. Uh, I think it's just it's good. I mean, the fact that you can use tech and you could potentially change the world for the better. And even when you look at just in the last 10, 20 years, how much technology has helped. I mean, it's hurt the world in some ways, but the ability for us. I mean, we have our phones that are stronger, more powerful than entire computers were even 10, 20 years ago. Right, is is kind of crazy, and and even in quite poor populations, like in like China, for instance, still everyone has a smartphone, right? And so what they can do individually is just so much more than they they were able to do before. And so, yeah. No, what I would take away from that is 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 like you, it needs to start from the problem, right? I mean, your premise is pretty much like shitty movies are a problem, right? And you know. With Rotten Tomatoes, you can get people not to watch them, save time, save money, and over time that will lead to hopefully like studios making better movies as well, right? And then that's just uh, like a virtuous cycle for everyone, right? But you start from the the problem instead of hey, let's just do a you know a review aggregator site and uh, flip it quickly, right? It's quite a yeah, two, yeah. Two different I mean, things. I think a lot of the best companies always. Always, but a lot of them started from some sort of problem, even if it was a, a small, what seemed like a minor problem. Mm, yeah. 
exactly. But you see that whole like uh, it's cool to be a startup founder. You see that everywhere. It's uh, all over Asia. It's uh, also Europe as well. So uh, times have changed. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably from I didn't watch the movie, but like Social Network or something, and everyone wants to be Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so it's the end of the podcast and we want to wrap up by asking you um, our last question, which is who would you like to hear uh, on this podcast? Do you have any suggestions of uh, guests that you think would be suitable? Yeah, I, I can name anybody. I think mm, if you yes. could get someone, I think if you get someone like Bill Gates, like that would be <laughs> absolutely amazing. Now um, we, I, now we set the bar high. We've had good suggestions before, yeah. but I think now we're shooting, shooting for this I, guy. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, but as far as to someone... Do I you have his number? No, I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> but I just think he's amazing. Um, yeah. For someone that has been as successful as him, I'm not sure if you guys saw that not Netflix three-part special around him. Yes, yes, but it was brilliant. To have all that, to essentially give it away, and he's already given away a ridiculous amount, even in now in his lifetime, and he will be continuing to give it away, to convince so many other extremely rich people like Warren Buffett to also join him. And he's not just giving away money. He's like actually going out, you know, trying to solve things like toilets in Africa and mm-hmm. polio and, and all those things. It's, it's absolutely amazing what he's done. And, you know, when, when America kind of pulled out of funding or reduced funding for the World Health Organization, I think Bill Gates by himself was like, I'm putting in, I can't remember, it was a billion or something, you know, a, ma- a giant amount. And I think, not only is he incredibly smart, but he's actually, he's like the best case version of, of what I talked about, of someone who is tackling the hardest problems on, on the planet. And I just think, yeah, I mean, if there's anyone I'd love to hear from, I mean, I, he would be the one. So go, go for okay. it. Okay. Now we have a nice star. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. So thank you so much, Patrick, uh, again. And it was such a great conversation and so insightful uh, to hear about your journey and all the lessons you've learned. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Thanks, Patrick. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.